Welcome to Unspoken Unsung, the podcast that introduces people we may pass on the street every day, never knowing how inspiring their life experiences and accomplishments are, or how much we could learn from them if we only knew their untold stories. It'll be right there in those coming fights, when we win those fights again. So don't ever give up No, don't ever give up Look to the left and you'll find it Look right, you'll see things on the mend Good people sharing the weight of the world With many prayers to send Cause they never give up No, they never give up on That's Dean Smith. I've known Dean Smith for probably 40 years or more, and I learned more about Dean in this brief conversation you're about to hear than I've known about him in all those years. This is a master class about music and the music business. Enjoy Dean Smith. Dean Smith, welcome to Unspoken Unsung. Thank you. So music's been your life work for decades. How old were you when you started playing? Well, I would have to say I was about, I was, I'm going to call it 10, 10 or 11. Uh, my dad had played guitar for many years, had a classic old Epiphone, and he taught me a G and a C and a D chord. And I was rolling, messed around with two or three chords, starting way back then, taking me into junior high and high school, you know. So were art and music, were those um, valued uh, interests of your parents? Not, not really so much. My dad was, uh, he was just a real blue collar uh, farm boy from Colorado. And my mom from, uh, from the Mormon family in Southern Utah. And so they were, they weren't artistic type people. Mm-hmm. But uh, art fascinated me for some reason. I don't know why, but uh, I was an art major as I went into through high school and into out of Palomar JC. I had some art classes and so on before I went to San Diego State, where I finally quit school. You know, that was mm-hmm. much later. What what caused you to decide to drop out at State? Because I couldn't get any classes that pertain to what I was interested in in the commercial art world illustrating and uh i wasn't a great illustrator or anything but uh nothing was available to me except maybe uh i had to take i remember taking uh dress design you know (laughs) and i had to take oil painting which was which was a horrible experience you know i would try to oil paint you know and and it looked like a big green and and black blob at the end of the whole thing and it didn't work and uh, uh i i was not really i wasn't I just, I was just not really stamped out to be a, you know, to, to go down the path of professional accounting, lawyering, doctoring, dentistry, uh, uh, anything like that. It's like, it's just all made my eyes glaze over, you know, by that time I'd played a lot of music and been in a few small bands. My first real bands were when I was in high school, when I was in, uh, uh, say, uh, Oh, 10th grade. By the time I was in the 10th grade, I'd messed around a little bit before that with an, with an old, my dad bought me a, he had an old, what was called a K guitar. Mm-hmm. K-A-Y, during the silver tone era of Sears and all those, those renditions and so on. But an old, just a horribly ugly, brown-bodied, solid-body electric guitar. 
very cheap. And, and I played on that for a long time and had a couple of friends around the neighborhood and so on. And uh, by the time 64 came around, I went into the high school over at San Diego and uh, I had always drifted in and out of the music store downtown Encinitas. I go to the music store and, and Ed Thompson, the owner of Singing Strings Instruments uh, Music Store. And he was a he was a an older elderly gentleman who worked on violins and he was a very he was yeah, just a, yeah. a guy like this, you know. And he says, Oh, I got this um they got this fender franchise and they got the they sent me this they sent me these guitars and these amps and everything, and I don't know. And he scratches and he goes, I don't know. Do you know anything about this stuff? You know, I said, I said, Yeah, that's a super reverb. <laughs> yeah, that's a fender strat. <laughs> I, said, know I know what that is. <laughs> uh and uh I talked my dad into that, and in 1964, he bought a brand new 1964 Strat and a 1964 Super Reverb. Wow. Fender amp. You still and have either I, of those? Oh, no, I don't. That's I cool. wish I did. This, I could retire with what the Strat's worth if I had it. Yeah. And I had many, many guitars and, and, and incarnations after that. You know, moving on down the road into my experiences out of San Diego State and everything, and probably played in 30 bands here and there up and down the coast to L.A. and back, whatever, and just moving around, moving around. That's kind of where you first knew me from when the, in the early 70s from Jega, I think. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of a lot of playing. So you joined a group of British recording artists called Buckweed in the 1970s, too. How did how did you get that? Right. How did I get that gig? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, uh, when I, when I first quit San Diego state, I, I decided I was going to be in a band and I was in a band with a guy named Dave Compton from San Diego. You probably don't know him, but he was a, you know him very well. I know him very well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, well, Dave was, you know, we were in a band together called bright morning way years ago and all that. And he was working down, on the Voyager on Shelter Island mm. as, as the guitar player in the house band with a guy named Dean Hawley. And it's just a whole circle of circle of whatever. And I got, I got into that band to be the bass player and, and Dave taught me how to play the bass parts. And I joined that band and I was in that band for like a good year or maybe even a little longer. I'm not really clear on that, but, uh, I met so many musicians coming through that place that were coming down from L.A. to play in Dean Hawley's band and all of this sort of thing. And uh, I met a drummer named Sonny Ray, who was out of L.A. And Sonny was a hell-bent drummer to make it in the music business. And wherever he went, he took me with him. So he took me with him up to L.A. to try this and try that and try this and try that. I also met... Tony De La Barreto, the bass player for Canned Heat. And he was the bass player in the house band down there for a while. And we lived together. And these incarnations and these associations and connections are just numerous, you know. But uh, I, I, I rehook, rehook up, uh, just briefly, I rehooked up with Tony, uh, you know, maybe 10 years ago. And he was still alive. And I, and I went to see him. And he had, he had developed... A paralyzing disease and he was in a wheelchair and all this but he was he was an excessive guy you know he was a mexican from mexico city that came up here with fido de la para the drummer for canned heat who remained the drummer for years after but anyway so i knew tony and i knew sunny and everything and these guys were dragging me around for this and that and then when when jago was over and that whole dean holly I, I quit the voyager and i just started looking for guys to play with and i met bill garcia you know and I'd always known Bill and Danny from the lyrics band through high school. You know, they were like the kings of the, you know, kings of the, mm -hmm. <laughs> the realm, you know. So, you know, we just kind of hooked up and had a band there and had that Jaga band that you heard, I guess. Yes. And um, out of that, it, it, it came to a, I'm kind of going on and on here, but when that came to an end, I had uh, heard about and run across a guy named Lee Barnes, a guitar player. I remember him well. That, he was good. I, I I I quit that band and I wanted to move on and I wanted to meet Lee and I wanted to play I wanted to play music with Lee and I and I drove to Escondido to do it and rehearse with him with a guy named John Sage and we were had a trio 
And we played out at Chuck's Steakhouse out in, in Escondido and everything. So these are just, you know, I mean, this road goes, I'm dragging through the weeds now, but, you know, played with Lee for about a year or whatever. And then Sonny showed up at one of our gigs, a drummer friend from Dean Holly days. And he was in a band called Buckwheat. Mm. He going because he was trying to make it. Those guys were out of Oklahoma City. And they were like king shit in, in Oklahoma and everything. They were, they were on London Records and they'd made an album. And they were made maybe three albums by the time I met them. But Sonny said, you got to get this guy to play guitar because he plays slide guitar and all that stuff. So they came to see me out of Chuck's one time. And I met Michael Smotherman, uh, who went, went on to great songwriting fame later. But uh, I was in that band Buckwheat and I joined them and, and, and drove back and forth across Route 66 from California clear to Oklahoma City through Amarillo and just back and forth, <laughs> carrying equipment, going to gigs, being with Buckwheat, made an album with those guys in Hollywood. And that was, that was about 73, I guess, 72 or 73, somewhere early 70s. Yeah. That lead to that, that band broke up eventually. You know, there was a big breakup in a parking lot outside a gas station, you know, <laughs> some of those trips we were on. And there's, there's the band that's been together for all these years, and all of a sudden they have a big fight and they break up. You know, it was, it was just, uh, you know, now at my age now, I this, this, this kind of memory stuff, dreams just go through my head and it, all this stuff and it replays itself. And it's like, it's a, it's a pretty long movie. <laughs> So I, I got into that band, the Buckwheat Band, and the DiMartino brothers managed that band. Yeah. They were, the, they were the managers of the Cascades out of San Diego. Well, they, and, they uh, also managed Captain Beefheart, did they not? Yes, they did. Is that how I you told, met Captain Beefheart? That's how I met him. Uh-huh. I met him. They, they took on the management of that time of Captain Beefheart because his entire you want to call them avant-garde or they, they turned left and went that way or whatever. Beefheart had a, a reputation that was huge having played with Frank Zappa and, uh, and his own solo career, which went on and on and on. But he was, he was, he was a, a B-level rock star that had a real cult following. You know, We could go anywhere and draw 500 people in the United States and they would come. I met him, but we got together with him because the DiMartino brothers took him on as the managers and his entire band quit him, I would say. Somewhere in 73, I guess, there, somewhere. I don't know. Right, 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 right about that time, 73, early 70s. Uh, his, Beefheart's entire band quit. You know, they were like a bunch of strange guys, you know, doing, he would, he would hum parts to them and they would play them. And it was just avant-garde rock, you know, blues-based. And Andy became his manager and said, his, his whole band quit. He's got a tour starting in uh, three weeks. You guys want to do it? Wow. And, and we said, uh, sure. You know, so it was me and Michael Smotherman. And um, that really was just me and Michael from the Buckwheat Band. Ty Grimes, the drummer, had played with Ricky Nelson. That was his claim to fame. He was just out of the Ricky Nelson Band. They played Garden Party at the, I don't know what you call it, New York City, the you know Grand in Madison Square Garden, they played that part, and he was in the he was in the band playing the drums when they got booed when he played that song. You know, look, these are just snippets that are just popping up in my head here. But Ty was the drummer, and there was uh, and the bass player was a guy named Paul Urig, who I'd met in my incarnations to to L.A. and back and so on. There was Paul, and then there was uh, a guy. We needed another guitar player, so we hired a guy out of out of uh, North Hollywood or whatever named Fuzzy Fascaldo, and he he was the other guitar player. And then there was a guy named Del Simmons, an older guy that played saxophone. No, no, he played a clarinet. I'm sorry, oh, yeah. played clarinet, and he played, uh, you know, Sweet Georgia Brown and all kinds of incarnations. So we had a show that was like a real hodgepodge of potpourri kind of, you know, we were like these, these Midwest blues rockers. Not me, I was from California, but uh, I was I had cut my teeth on the almonds, the almond brothers, and all that stuff, uh, and. Uh, which is, uh, I don't want to forget to mention Dwayne Allman, who basically uh, didn't steer me, but he just, he just grabbed me and said, you're doing this. And then I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't even hear any other guitar except that guy playing slide guitar, and that's all I heard. So I tried to mimic and ape, you know, Dwayne Allman for years. So I could do it pretty good. And uh, that got me 
quite a bit of mileage. It helped with Beefheart because they had a lot of slide guitar in his music. That's how I met Don, and then and that turned into this tour, and we played it. Our first gig was the Whiskey, and we played at the Whiskey, and there we were. And we went off to Europe, you know, and played England, uh, Germany, uh, in, in the Netherlands up to the north, you know, the, the Dutch and the Holland and all that. The thing, the pink, the thing called Pink Pop Festival. It was, like a, it was like a Woodstock thing in Europe there at a racetrack where, you know, we played, came out on stage and we looked out and it was like, you know, thousands of people, you know, at a racetrack. It was just a standing out there, you know. <laughs> it was really something. But anyway, that's how I met Beefheart, and uh, I became friends with him pretty much because he was just a regular guy that was kind of kind of schizophrenic. I think he he had he was just a freak of nature, you know. He had his perceptions of the way he saw the world. There's a whole story about Beefheart. I don't even want to start there. But I would sit late, I would sit up late with Don, and he'd say, "I got this thing here. He'd play this, and he'd whistle me this melody through his nose. He would <laughs> <laughs> nose, yeah." And he'd say, okay. And so I'd play that, you know, and he'd say, no, no, now I got to do this right here, you know. And it was just, I thought it was my, one of my stepping stones to where I was going to wind up. And it wound up being my, my pinnacle high point, you know, of as far as I would get, you know. And then everything was like slowly back down to Encinitas from there. So we did the, uh, the old gray whistle test. I don't know whether you were going to mention that, but that's when that happened in, in 70. Three seventy-four, I guess. Yes, seventy-four. The old gray whistle test that I I had no idea that we had ever done that. There was no connection, no contact with us to tell us that we were on this TV show. Nobody, nobody anywhere ever told me that. But I found out about it thirty years later in like ninety-three. It's interesting uh, too because most of Captain Beefheart stuff is is so um, dissonant. So the, the the rhythms are so strange and so unusual. I guess yeah. many people consider that part of his genius, but it that that seems like it'd be a hard act to jump into with only three weeks lead into a tour. Yeah, yeah. Well, we did. Uh, you know, the, the claim the claims to fame or the high points of that to mention would be. You know, we played a one of my favorite songs from Don's Don's first album was called Safe as Milk which I played over and over when I was in high school. And so I, I was like, I knew, I said, I'm going to be playing with Beefheart. I can't believe this, you know? So there's a song called Abba Zabba. was was one of the, the premier songs on that, uh, that album, Abba Zabba. Uh, and there's like one or two others. Uh, Peaches, um, I don't know. But when we met him and got hooked up with him, the, the aim was to combine more conventional blues rock with his oddity we didn't play all odd beef heart type music we played straight ahead right down the middle blues rock which is what that's what i had been playing and all that and, uh, so it was a combination of the two things but in the show we only did a couple of of weird ones where we had to count weird and and, and do weird timings and stuff like that and weird melodic phrases and so on but yeah there was a little bit of that given what happened with his band quitting and the reputation he had for being kind of you know, my way or the highway. Did you mm -hmm. have any misgivings about touring with him? No, no, not really, because we just needed a gig, you know, um, and uh, I was a fan. I was a huge fan of his, and I was going, this is, this is like dropped in my lap here. And Michael Smotherman, who was like, died in the world, hardcore Midwest, you know, shit-kicking, Good old boy, guy from, in, yeah. from Oklahoma and everything. They thought he was an idiot. You know, I said, this guy's an idiot. Man. Said, what am I doing? What am I doing? I don't want anything. But he needed a gig. So he just played organ and sang a few songs here and there. We did a lot of playing. A lot of, a lot of bootleg recordings of that band in, in Europe when we played there in 73 that have come out later. I have these stored on a little kind of a retrospective of a lot of that stuff yeah uh you know and out there's an album called london 74 i think is the title and it's 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 a, it's just audio it's just us doing a, a concert that we did in london and i have that and i listen to it once in a while because midway through that show i just keep it as a little a little memento of i'm playing guitar or something and then and, and, and don says beefart actually says a stain smith on guitar, you know, like that. And so that's my... <laughs> yeah. 
name was Don Van Fleet. Fleet, that's right. Dutch. Yeah. So you said something about him being a paramount influence on you. How, how so? Just to, to, to convey and to uh, support the idea of uh, don't let anybody tell you how to do it. Be your own guy. If you have something to say, say it. If you don't have anything to say, you shouldn't be up here. And if you do have something to say, just, just be saying what you think is your heart and what, what you think is the way to say it, even if people consider it weird. And just crack on, crank on, crank on, crank on. So basically, I, I guess I would say that that's what I got from him. Not anything purely musical, but just, just the philosophy of what are you doing this for? What, what are you here for? Mm-hmm. Just show, show me something that's you, you know, so... I think he did that at the expense of going commercial enough to make the kind of money that was possible for him, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. He was, you know, he had some photos of him holding dollar bills where he's going, he's in it for the money, you know, now and all this. It was a whole, it was a whole thing, you know. And we were critically with the critics and everything. Of course, we had the purists and we were like, you know, it's like, get those guys out of here. This is the most horrible. This is not beef heart. This is whatever. Naturally, that would happen. And it did. But we had some really stellar positive reviews in England, in London. I had some, some, some printouts of these, the review of the, in the, the London Dr- Drury Lane Theater, I think it was, was we played and uh, had a pretty good gig and uh, I got good reviews. So I'm going, wow. <laughs> well, so, you know, I hear, hear all of these people over the years, you know, all the, all the people on the talk shows and everything. What do you think about the reviews you're getting and everything? You know, it's like, you know, I don't read them. I don't pay any attention to them, you know, because they're all bad. <laughs> so Van Fleet and Frank Zappa collaborated on projects even into the 70s. Did you did you meet or work with Zappa at all? I never met him and never never knew of any of that. I just I just figured that with his old band, the the freaks that he had in his old band, that they were living up there in Hollywood doing whatever they were doing. And Frank was around and they were like, you know, they were sort of once in a while, Don and Frank, maybe, I don't know. But no, I never met him. Yeah. So you played on an album that he made called Blue, Blue Jeans and Moonbeams. You That's recorded right. that one in 74 in Hollywood. There you go. So what, what happened with you and Van Fleet after the tour and the record? Well, we, we made that record right when we got home from the tour. We go, okay, now we're going to make this album. You know, just, 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 just text me. You just stamp it right out of the music business. It's like tour, make a record. It's just like you're thinking about, I'm out and not comparing it. Believe me, make sure you're clear about this. The, the, the whole Beatle thing was those guys, they just worked their asses off. And every time they had a chance to breathe, they said, we got to make another record. Okay, now we got to go and tour here and tour all over the place. Now we're going to make another record. Hmm. You know, the record of those guys is like, I mean, I think they made five albums in, in something like, I'm, I'm just guessing now, something like five albums in a year. In 12 months, it was like, oh, 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 oh. they just banged them out. And uh, when they had to make another record, they'd been touring and just playing their asses off all the time, just bang, 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 bang. It's like, we need another album. Well, where's the songs? Well, they wrote the songs <laughs> and they wrote five albums worth of songs and then five more albums worth of songs. And Tim or the Beatles song is like this thick, you know, yeah. and there's not a turkey of a song in the whole bunch. All of them are good. It's like, oh, my God, how did they do that? You know, Fleetwood Mac and all these other bands come along and everything. And it's like, well, it took two years to make that album. And then, 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 then we played, made two albums and then they disbanded. And the Eagles made this. And they, 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 they. Oh, come on, give me a break. <clears throat> but that's back, that's back in the days when, when musicians, if you wanted to be a musician, you had to pay your dues and just bang it out in the nightclubs day in, day out, four hours a night usually. You know, there's no four-hour gigs anymore. There's no gigs anymore. But anyway, I, I, I digress, you know, so. Yeah. So after, after you worked with Beefheart, uh, you worked with some other notables, such as Mark Lindsay. He was one of the founding members of Paul Revere and the Raiders. Right. Yeah, I worked with him. I also worked with Spencer Davis. And those were, after after Beefheart, we all came back to Hollywood and we're all hanging around, sleeping on each other's couches, you know, going, what are we going to do now, you know? And 
So through uh, management and through just connections in the music business or whatever our management guy, well, you know, Mark Lindsay needs a guitar player for this gig. Spencer Davis needs one guitar player for this gig. So I did those two things. Those were one shot things, one gig. That was it. Ah, okay. So I did that. And I pretty much at that point, I think I was, I think I was about 26 at the time. And at that point through out of, out of all the experiences from 1970 all the way through 76, about five to six years, I had had enough and I went home. I said, okay, that's it. And I knew that I had to write and compose and create my own music if I ever wanted to get anywhere with music because uh, one of the lessons I learned being on the road all those years was I, I played guitar pretty good. I would say I call myself at a B level or I'm an advanced intermediate, you know, if you look at the guitar players and the music that's on the internet now and you go like they're just freaks of nature like these guys the way they play and this oh my god this guy is this guy this guy this guy and the, and the internet is just flooded with you know i i felt like i was a rock from moonlight beach you know and then as as the time comes to now i feel like you know i've been reduced to like like i'm a grain of sand that, that came from moonlight beach i'm a grain of sand down here you know uh i basically went home said I got to write and record. So I got some tape recorders and I've been writing and doing and creating songs ever since. Not really excited about going and playing in bars again. You know, I didn't want to do it any, anymore like that. I wanted to either make it with my own music or let somebody else be in the tribute bands. I didn't want to do that. So I've been here ever since in my corner making up songs. So... Yeah. When, when did you say you started writing songs? Was it when you got back from, from Europe and all that and back to L.A.? That's when, I, that's when I dug in heavily. I'd actually written my first song or two out there on the road with Smotherman. And uh, I don't have a copy of that song or whatever, but it was, it was somehow it got in there intertwined with Mike Curb publishing and all that. And it was like, and it was like, you signed this contract and everything at the bottom. It was like, okay, we have your song forever, you know, one of those deals. Uh, so I really started there in, 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 in late 74, 75, and then just came home and knocked around and got recording equipment and started really bearing down to writing and recording and learning how to do all that stuff in about 76, 77. Yeah. Well, Mike Curb was a big deal. And then, and then you, you, you were brought on board with Criterion Music, which uh, they were right. big. That was a spinoff from Capitol Records. That's now, right. Now they're with Universal Music Publishing Group. Are you still mm -hmm. with them with Criterion or with Universal? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 kind of, I kind of just jumped over that. But I got, I got associated with Criterion Music Publishing, and a, and a guy named Terry Wright was my connection. He had worked in Criterion for many years and was instrumental. His claim to fame was he was in the during the signing of he helped the signing signing of Jackson Brown and those guys and so on. There's this whole convoluted connection of the criterion music was a guy named Bo Goldson, who unfortunately, sadly is, 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 uh, passed away and all that, but his, his, his dad, Mick, Mickey Goldson was his dad who started criterion way back in the old days, I think, and just a publishing company. And so I was with them. I'm going, I'm going, okay, I'm going to write songs and I'm going to get somebody to do a, you know, my idea was to come home and write and record and everything. And I might be maybe in a band again. I don't know. But just just write and record and write and record and get somebody to do your songs so you can stay home. That <laughs> was my aim. You know, <laughs> I was living I was living down the street or across. It, to this day, you know, I could throw a rock and hit his house. But Jack Timchin lives over. I can point my finger over here. And I met him right when I got home in 74 about early seventies when he was just getting, he had his hit songs with peaceful, easy feeling the Eagles. And, and here was Jack and the, the dump trucks were backing up into his yard with cougar ants and just dumping them on the, <laughs> on the lawn, you know, and I'm going, Oh my God, this is, this is, this is what I want to do. I want to just make music and let somebody else play it. Cause I never, I never was, I only played, I really, I really played in bands and played live and played on stage and performed and did that. And I never liked it. You know, I just did it because I knew it was the means to the end, you know, kind of thing. You know, I had come out of uh, I just had some, probably a traumatic experience of 
being made to sing with family reunions out in, in Zion <laughs> National Park. And here's here's Dean, he sings Little Red Wagon, and he's five years old, and it's like I was just panicked, you know. Oh, no. So I, I think I just got just totally traumatized to like performing and everything. And I was like, I don't want to do that. But I knew I had to overcome that if I wanted to get anywhere. So I, I just forced myself to do it. But when I had a chance to not do it, I said, that's for me. <laughs> Yeah. Well, with Jack and and when he did Peacefully and Feeling All Those, he did he got he made a lot of money on the on publishing. And then in the old days, publishing was where and and albums selling albums was where the money was. But now, concerts and touring are what has to happen for a musician to keep living, doesn't it? No. Uh, uh, anymore, the bands that do make it, if they do make it. They're making it because they tour and until they can't and, and they're like a cash cow. So they run them and run them and run them until they just drop you know, to make the money. They make the money on the publishing and all the, the, the music business in the last, I'll call it the last 40 years rather than 30. Uh, there was the beyond Jack Timpson's period of time where the monetary monetizing, monetizing is one of my major notes. I have a little notebook that I keep my, my life in a notebook <laughs> about this big. It's like page 75, monetizing your music. Not anymore. Actually, I'd, I'd like to read you a quote from Joe Walsh and get your thoughts on it. Joe Walsh, he was also another Encinitas resident here. He said, records, record stores, record sales, it's all gone. And it's up to the young musicians to try to figure it out. There's no money in it, no record companies. It's free. You can download it. Nobody gets paid, so they can't afford to make music. That's what's happening. Can I quote him? Sure. That's what I've been doing for the last 40 years, is making no money doing what I'm doing. I had the publishing deal with Criterion that almost, I almost got a cover with, I was told, you know, you know how stories are. It's like we don't believe we don't believe any stories now. Everything's a lie, of course. Now, so and it, it, I call this I call this living in the twilight zone. You know, I feel like I'm living in the twilight. Is this really happening? It's like the, the, the system and the way it's working. But anyway, yeah, that that, that is so true. There's no money, in, no monetizing. Took it away. It's gone. Wow, that seems like it really shakes your life up. Yeah, it does when, you know, my aim was, uh, my, my goal was pretty, pretty much like you find out when you go further and further along that you're not the only player in this game. And so you think there's this many players and there's like this many players. It's like mm, yeah. just a grain of sand on the beach. I'm the only guy that writes songs and, and tries to sell them. No. Is anybody going to pay any money for any of these songs? No. Oh, wait a minute. You get that to stream. For like millions, you get a million million viewers or streamings and everything, and we'll give you ninety nine cents for your song. Yeah, there's a uh, if I, if I may just throw this in here real quickly because I'm thinking of it of a Vince Gill, great artist, great songwriter, great guitar player, just you know, at, at the advanced level of world class. You know, I'm 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 like a B B level, you know, advanced or intermediate of the world. You have the world class and the B level, and you have the people people that need lessons, you know, but um, he said, uh, he, he was talking about the, the value of music, kind of like kind of following up on Joe Walsh's comment, you know, it's like he said, uh, you know, there's, you can get an app to, uh, for music now, and uh, your songs can go on, go on the app, and they're distributed, and everybody gets your songs and all your music, and they pay 99 cents for it, and he says, he says, you know, there's also an app for a fart box no that you can way. buy for 99 cents. So now my music is equated to being worth about as much as a fart box. Oh, God. Oh, that's disgusting. He just, he just said that. It was just, I don't know, it was a few months ago, several months ago, I saw it in a, he was on a, something I was watching or whatever, I don't know. Well, you're still, you're yeah. prolific. You're writing a lot. You're recording a lot. Yeah. What's your songwriting and recording process? Well, you know, it used to uh, it used to be when I would, because I knew I had an ability to make stuff up, and to, and I always had ideas and and perceptions about how I perceived the society or the or the or the whatever the social network or or 
or politics or the world or whatever. And I always want, I always had, had a, and you know, I got to write something about that because that annoys the shit out of me. So I have like 10 songs that have to do with nuclear Holocaust, nu- nuclear annihilation. I have songs of warning us about, you know, oh God, don't you know, geez, yeah. here comes the big one, you know? So, you know, you're writing all of these poignant, you think, things that talk about that, that nobody will ever hear. Or if they hear it, they go, hey, that's a good song. That's a way to go, way to go. We're going to blow ourselves up, huh? Okay, well, I'll see you later, you know? And then I have love songs and country songs and, and blues rock songs and, and all of the basic genres except jazz. You know, I'm not a jazz musician. Would never even study in that area to be a jazz musician. Uh, a little late now, but uh, from, the, from the basic building blocks of what music really is, it's really, I just kind of demystify it in my lessons, starting with the C scale on the piano. And it's like, here you go. You learn, you learn this, you put, you put this thing on your guitar mm-hmm. and you have these forms and you do this, you know, you learn the chord shapes and the scale shapes and you're off and running. Do you have anything to say? Can you put these chords together? And then you get these students and they go, and here come the, here come the students with the chords and the songs and the, the little the Taylor Swifts and all the people. And they put the capo on the guitar and they're playing the same three chords over and over and they have a different song and everything. So I said, the chords didn't make the song. The melody made the song. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, there's lyrics and the lyrics made the song. The lyrics and the melody together. If you've got something to say, you can find some chords to just stick on there and do that. You can arrange the chords. You can do that. In terms of getting the feel for your songs, do you what what role does rhythm play? Do you have a do you have a kind of a beat in mind too when you get started? You know, you know that that's an interesting question because for my music. I'm concerned about the song rather than whether it's in three, four or four, four, or whether I go along and it's like, and then you have to do the the 16th notes right here and you do that. And and then you have to have the kick drum and all that. And you have, then it goes into seven, eight. And then all of a sudden you have a big break right here and have those are all, those are all rhythm chops and everything about what drums do and drummers do and these magnificent drummers. I never had a, I never wrote a song that needed a magnificent drummer. I, I write songs that need Yes, they need that. And I can find a drum beat that will cover the idea for the song that I have. So my point is, is that I use drum loops. I don't hire drummers. I don't have drum sessions with microphones all over the place and all of this stuff. Right. There's drum loops in my, I'm looking right at it. My MacBook is sitting right in front of me. My drum loops are right in this thing, along with my Logic 9 program. I'm drifting off into what I used. But uh, I just need a drum beat, you know? Yeah. So I can find drum beats that sometimes are inspiring to inspire me to write something a certain way or whatever. But uh, I'm looking for a real simple, if I were to break it down to the sim- simplest element of rhythm in my songs, I need a metronome. Bang, 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 ding, 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 ding. And then you have... You know, and then all of a sudden there's these chords. I'm really big into chord arrangements and stuff. And the melody that goes with that. And then hopefully I have a little bit of something to say coming out of here with the lyrics and everything. But, you know, no, just not rhythmically anything really. I've gone through incarnations of, you know, delving, diving into the deep rhythm pool and stuff. And it's like, it, it's, that's great and everything. And it's like, you can, wow, that's really impressive and everything. It's like, where's the song? Is there a song there? I learned that, you know. When I first met Jack Temption, Jack's a, he's been a developing musician over the years, all the way to this point even. But when I first met him, he just basically knew three chords and that was it. So he knew the same ones that I knew when I was 10. So I found out what songwriting was about. Yeah. Do you have a melody and do you have words? Bingo. This reminds me of my quote that I saved by Ray Manzarek, Doris keyboard player. And he did, you know, after the doors, he did productions and studios and stuff like that and tried to stay in the business and so on until he's not with us anymore either, unfortunately. But uh, he, uh, he basically nailed it when he said, uh, well, you know, everything was analog in the old days and then everything became digital, which is like music without any noise behind it. You know, it's like, take, get that noise out of there. I want to hear the, the pure music, mm. which is really really destroying the quality of the music if, if, if there was nothing uh, 
not that you're not you're not that you're trying to get noise, but the what they call the signal noise ratio and the noise for it's it's inherent in everything that we do. And you you do a ratio of signal to noise, and you have the parts, and the drummer does this, and the keyboard player does that, and the guitar does this, and the guy sings and everything. So he goes, you know, I don't care whether it's analog or digital or whatever. I don't I'm not going to chase this stuff around until I'm blue in the face. I just want to know if you have some notes to strike on your instrument. Can I hear them? And do you have something to go with that? And are the two things together starting to be something? Can I hear the, the essence of your music, the melody, the chords, and the words? Can I hear those things? If I can hear those things, I don't give a shit whether it's digital, analog, or schmanalog. <laughs> yeah. So and when you record, do you do basic tracks first? You do the bass after the drums and then lay guitar in? Or what? You stack guitars up pretty much. Yeah, I, I did. There's no formula. I might get a drum loop going. Or I, usually I have the acoustic guitar around that I ride on because I don't play piano. So the acoustic guitar is the germination to me coming up with. I just have been a, a freak for guitar chords and parts and stuff. So over the years, as I've recorded and everything, I'm always trying to trying to cram the instrument that I play guitar into the song. Say, oh, here's a song. I think the song's pretty good. Is there any place where I can play, play a bunch of guitar and dance parts in that part? Yeah. So I always find a way to do that, but there's never any rule. I mean, I'm working on a song right now. I don't know whether it's going to be the last one I do for a good while or not, but it's, it's, going, it's, it's going to be called Take Me Out to Moonlight Beach is the title. And it's just, uh, just a, 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 a one, four, five blues shuffle, medium tempo blues shuffle. Nothing, nothing inventive at all, except just me. And I just, I, I, kick these words around like crazy and change this word and that word and go, oh, this could be that and this could be that. So I'm, wor I'm working on that, but it's just like, the, you know, the drum beat is dun, 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 dun. there you go. I've got that. I got a song I can do to that. I got some words and I got a melody. And of course, I'm going to play guitar until I'm falling off the chair. In the recording, I'll be trying to show off what I can do on guitar, such as it is. Well, I'll tell you, your your opinion of your where your level is as a guitarist and mine are two different things. I think you're whatever <laughs> B level, man. You're you are one fine guitar player. Well, I I appreciate that, Dan, and I and you've you've been a good friend for all these years. And I, I know that you were a a fan and appreciated and so on, because in the music business, you can tell the people that are the real people that are your friends and 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 I, I figure I have I, I can say that I could say that maybe 50 people are aware of what I do. And for me, that's enough. But, you know, for it to be money, it has to be 5,000 or 50,000 people or 5 million people. And then all of a sudden you get paid, you know. But uh, I appreciate that a whole lot uh, more than you know. And, and, and the proof positive is here we are after all these years and you're talking to me about it. Nobody's ever asked me anything about it. Because uh, what is this? The unsung and the unspoken? Unspoken, unsung. Unspoken, unsung. I need to get that in the right order there. Yeah. Boy, how appropriate is this? That's well said. Well, that's the interesting thing about life. I mean, that there are some people that have done some absolutely magnificent things. And there's so many of them among us. I bet, I mean, given all the people you know, there probably are hundreds of people that, that, you know, could walk down the street and not a soul would recognize them and that sort of thing. But they've, they've done absolutely astounding things in their lives. Absolutely. Your, your own kids probably have no idea the depth of what your career has been and what your passion has been in music and what keeps you writing and playing to this day. You know, I mean, that. Yeah. 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 I think, I think my, uh, my, my son and my daughter, uh, my son is a, is a particular type of boy. He's just a guy, you know, and everything. My daughter is, is, was, was musically connected and she, she gets it and followed, followed me closely. You know, she's getting older now and it's like her life is going on like this, but uh, uh, I feel fortunate for both of them that she was a, uh, responded to my music and wanted to, if I had a new song, she wanted to hear it and all that. And it's like, I was just, uh, you know, Still to this day, it's like the reaction I get from that when I get it is like, uh, that's like I had a hit record, you know. <laughs> so, we are still gigging these days, right? You're gigging with no, no. You know, I had I had this health problem back in 2018. You know, it was like like a 
kind of like a heart problem, really. I, I had uh, pericarditis, which is the, you know, a little bit about this. There's peritonitis, the, the body cavity, but, you know, just, just the miracle of construction of where we came from and what do we really know about that. But, you know, your heart has a whole a bag around it to, to, to protect it, you know. If that gets infected in there, you get pericarditis, you know, and it's like, oh, God. Anyway, I had a health problem. It knocked me down off, off the ladder like a rung, I, I figured. And then I finally realized I had no, well, I better call it two rungs. Top, you knock me down two rungs. So I've been battling my way back since 2018 to keep, keep, to keep where I can do this. And took my voice away. My singing voice just went. <clears throat> so now, in answer to your, to your, to your uh, statement there about, uh, yeah, I still do this all the time. And what used to take me like a month to do now, it takes me three months or four months to do it because I'm just, uh, and I have to go in and I have to record it and I have to do it over and over until I get it right because I'm just a perfectionist, you know. But yeah, I still do it. I still do it. But I, I, uh, gigging, you were asking, not really, not now. I never say never. Maybe I'll play a little gig somewhere or whatever and can maybe do, maybe do an hour. But my energy is different and, uh, you know, well, Father Time, you're 73, you're going, what, what, what are you doing? You're going to be running around like you were? Probably not. It's kind of, it's kind of funny. I've, I've been thinking about all of the medical stuff that happens with me and my friends. It reminds me of when you have a car and the, and the warranty runs out, all of a sudden, man, all the, everything starts breaking down. Right, and it breaks really fast. You know, <laughs> like it's going along, and it's like, yeah, this is great, and everything. And then one thing falls off, and you go, yeah, like you say, a week later, another thing falls off, and before you know it, at the end of the month, the thing is like a wreck. You know? <laughs> well, you've got a terrific collection of songs you wrote and recorded on uh, that's available on SoundCloud, and we'll post yeah. some links to your music with your permission. What I'd like to do is play one of my favorites from your SoundCloud cloud collection. It's uh, it's a song called Ohio Blues, and oh, yeah. the guitar work in that song is exceptional. It's it's really kind of you know it's odd that you you say you don't do jazz, but that's so jazzy. Your solo work in there it has a real jazz feel to it to me. Yeah, yeah. Before uh, before you do that, let me just explain that through the through the simplicity of the the five forms of the pentatonic scale. You know, I, I teach the caged system. I got it from a guy named Ron Middlebrook out of his book. And the, uh, the simplest beginner to the intermediate to beyond is, is presented to you. And it depends on how you juxtapose and how you improvise. And, and you have the scales and you have the chords. And it's just up to you to juxtapose them, you know. Mm -hmm. So in answer to your question, I don't really have any jazz knowledge. But I'm hell-bent hell to just be creative like that, like most musicians, you know, they, 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 they play what they know, they learn and they know and they know and they know and they go, now how can I do that? And what am I gonna do here? And they create phrases and so on and so forth. And that's what keeps us going is just doing that because there's no ceiling on it, it just goes to the moon. But the knowledge level of the information that's call it mathematical or just the nuts and bolts and the theory of what's going on is really pretty simple. You know, but the way you twist it and do this and do this here and do that there, yeah, that's where the challenge is, you know. How about Mix satisfaction? Do you, do you get a lot of satisfaction out of recording and writing still? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm so glad that you picked that song because that's one of my most recent where I could still play and, and do my thought, my thing that I do where I just play, I get prepared and I, I practice and I play and then I just play and take takes, you know. And uh, I get a lot of satisfaction out of that, yeah. I'm going to be doing a lot of that on my new song, you know, so. That's great. Well, Dean, it's been a real pleasure spending this time with you, and thank you so much. Yeah, you bet. It's, um, I'm just, I'm just, uh, it's, all, it's, all, it's all kind of like serendipity or, or it was meant to be kind of thing. Things, things happen for a reason and all that sort of stuff. Da, 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 da. <laughs> but uh uh, I'm so glad you asked me to do this because, as you can tell, I don't have any uh, any any hesitation in flapping my gums about it. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're doing. <laughs> yeah. So, 
All right, well, I'll let you go. We're going to close out the, uh, the the episode here with your song, Ohio Blues. Here's Dean Smith's Ohio Blues. I got a heart, a heart of gold Like a new young anthem on a Springfield road Gotta get down to it, play some of those old times My plan, my plan got delayed. I played my guitar while we're being played. Gotta get down to it, play some of those old time blues. I've been sleeping in a lockdown dream. I've been sleeping with the 60s off. I've been waking to a brand new scheme of where we were and where we are. Well, welcome to the lockdown blues. Yeah, welcome to my new guitar. Spoken Unsung was recorded in the Conversaire Studio, Carlsbad, California. Additional recording and mixing was done at Brother Rock Projects, also in Carlsbad. Martin Danner and Ken Langen engineered the recording. Post-production engineer was Ken Langen. The show's host and producer is Dan Danner. Music was provided by Zapsplat. Listen and subscribe to Unspoken Unsung wherever you find your podcasts. And if you like it, please rate and review us. Join us again next month for the next episode of Unspoken Unsung. Unspoken Unsung.